If you'd like to turn with me to the book of Exodus, uh, the book of Exodus, and we're going to be looking at Exodus chapters one and two, but it's quite a big chunk, so we're not going to be reading all of it in one go. Uh, We're going to be starting at verse eight, and then we are going to be reading down through until uh, verse 10 in chapter two, and then we're going to read a wee bit at the end. Let's hear God speak to us. Exodus chapter one, starting at verse eight. Now... There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know about Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And their lives were bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field, and in all the works they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." Then the king of Israel said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to Hebrew women and see them on their birth still, if it is a son, you shall kill him. And if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes. So God dealt with the midwives, or dealt well with the midwives, sorry. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because of the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born of the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile and you shall let every daughter live. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And when he could, she could hide him no longer, she took him, she took him a basket made of bushels and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed him among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it and she opened it and saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I shall give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of water. And if you want to skip down just to verse 23 of chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning 
And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Amen. I think whenever we begin to look at the Old Testament, we often run into a difficulty. It's an idea that probably many of us believe or many of us have it in our heads a little bit, or if not in our heads, we know people who believe this idea. And it's a very simple idea, but yet it's one that has permeated through much of how our culture talks about Christianity and is one that's ultimately a lie. And it's this. So that as you read to the Old Testament, you encounter a God of wrath, but as you read to the New Testament, you encounter a God of love. It's one of the oldest heresies or oldest lies about Christianity that's ever existed. It goes all the way back to a guy called Marcion, who decided that he didn't like the Old Testament, so he cut it out of his Bible and then began to cut out the bits of the New Testament he didn't like as well. And it comes from that idea that whenever we read the Bible, Often the Old Testament can seem confusing, and to those of us in a more modern Western context, it can seem a little harsh. And then we get to the New Testament, we read about Jesus and love and forgiveness, and we think, this is great, this is the bit I like. Clearly, there's a disconnect here. However, one of the wonderful things about the book of Exodus, and hopefully one of the wonderful things we're going to see over the next few months as we look at it, is that in the book of Exodus, we see, I think, most clearly how this book, this Bible, old and new, is one story showing us the grace of the God that we worship. And stitched into this book, through every fiber of it, through every illusion, every reference and every shadow, there are glimpses and tastes of the morsels of the gospel to prime us and to whet our appetites for what will ultimately come whenever we read of Jesus and see him all the more clearly in the new. And that's what I want us to have a wee look at this morning as we look at these first two chapters in Exodus. How it primes us for the good news that's going to come in the New Testament. But ultimately, how the whole book is stitched to show us the grace of God. And I just want to look at Exodus as a story, then look at the slavery that we see in chapter 1, and then finally the Savior that we see in chapter 2. So the story that we see in chapter 1. As I said, Exodus is a book that primes us to hear the gospel. It gets our, our minds ready, and for ancient ears, it would have been sowing seeds that would grow in their minds to ultimately bring to fruition the full height of the, of the love of the God that they are following and serving. There's a great Old Testament uh, writer called Alec Moitier. He was from Dublin, but he died a few years ago, who wrote this. He said that Exodus is a book of the grace which reaches from heaven and of the law which teaches redeemed sinners to live in heavenly terms. And while some of these great truths are foreshadowed in Genesis, Exodus pulls them all together, giving them a shape and a definition that the rest of the Bible will not alter. Exodus is setting ideas in place that will permeate throughout the whole Bible. If you want to learn how to read Exodus well, or learn how to read the whole Bible well. Start with Exodus, because it primes us for what the whole Bible will show us. There's just a few really simple ways I want to highlight to you. The first is, if I were to ask you, what is the most important thing about Christianity, or what's the most important thing about our faith, or what's the most important thing you believe about God, the odds are that you would say that he's our savior. It just comes off us naturally to the tongue. 
But what's interesting is that if you had read through the Bible, Genesis through into Exodus, there's no real salvation moment in the book of Genesis. And for a lot of the ancient Jews, they would have said the most important thing about their God was that he created the whole world, everything, not just a little pocket, but the whole world. But it's when we get to Exodus, where we read of the story of God's people in bondage and in slavery and God redeeming them, saving them miraculously and drawing them out of the land in which they have been tortured and worked so tirelessly into the wonderful dwelling place where they will meet with God on Mount Sinai and then go from there to go into the land flowing of milk and honey. That that God is the God they will describe as their saviour. This is the book that introduces the idea to us that God is not just a creator, but he's a savior. And not only that, and perhaps even of, of even richest glory, I think, to grasp is that in Exodus, we see that the God of the Israelites, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is unlike any other God of the ancient world. Because not only is he a God who created the whole world and not just a little pocket, he made it with purpose and with design and with a a, a real end to its use, that is to glorify him. But he also wants people to know him and he takes the initiative to bring people to know him. Rather than people having to go on long quests to search God or have to go through some sort of mystic ritual, this God that we will read about throughout the book of Exodus is a God who steps into space and time to reveal himself to us. He will, in a sense, touch earth at Mount Sinai and he will deliver a wonderful word to his people where he will declare that he will be their God and they shall be his people. And he gives them the words of his law and ultimately the words of salvation and the gospel bound up in them. He steps into space and time to reveal himself. One of the, um, one of the world leading, ex- leading experts in Exodus, the book of Exodus at the minute, um, is a Bible scholar called Desi Alexander. And often I will quote people uh, on a Sunday morning. And this is the first time I've quoted somebody who I've had coffee in their house. Um, and Desi, Desi's new book says this about it, and I think it sums it up so well. He says, from start to finish, the story of Exodus explores how Yahweh takes the initiative in order that the Israelites and others may know him more fully. As we go through the book of Exodus in coming weeks, there will be lots of details and there's lots of little stories. There's lots of it we know very well, but it's very easy for us to miss the wood for the trees. And so this is what we ought to have in the back of our minds as we read our way through this book. What is this book trying to show us? It's trying to show us a God who is not far off and removed, but a God who initiates relationship with his people to draw them into a union and communion with him so that they may know him more and that others, people like us who will live thousands of years later, may know this God who's revealing himself. This is the wonderful thing about the book that we read, and I hope it gets you excited about it. A God who reveals himself. That's the story of Exodus. But it starts off in slavery. It starts off in slavery. If you look down with me, the, the writer of Exodus picks up in the verses that we didn't read at the start, summing up the brothers of Joseph, Joseph of 
Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, um, who I'm sure we're all familiar with, that Joseph, who has died many years ago. But the idea is the writer of the Exodus wants us to remember what's went on in Genesis. But there's a problem here, isn't there? Because if any of you know the story of Joseph, you'll know that Genesis as a book ends with a high point. Joseph starts off one day in prison, having been unfairly imprisoned for having tried to sleep with Potiphar's wife. And he's cast in there and he interprets a dream for uh, the cupbearer to the king and therefore is liberated and is freed. And on that same day becomes prime minister or the equivalent of prime minister in Egypt and has the second most powerful man in all of the kingdom. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? And that's how Genesis ends, whenever his family are reunited, and it's this wonderful moment. It almost ends at a high point. And yet Exodus starts at a low point. You ever find that funny? What has happened in the interim years to allow for this family that were once so well esteemed and so highly regarded that one of their sons would be the prime minister of Egypt to then in the very next chapter, in the next book of the Bible, their slaves? What's happened? It's alluded to in that ominous phrase that we started off with in verse 8. There arose a new king over Egypt there arose a new king. Now, the idea that's being got at here whenever we read about there's an arising is the idea that this is far more than just a change of king, but this is a change in regime, a change in empire. And in fact, the pharaoh that they reckon was the pharaoh at the time of Exodus chapter one was Pharaoh Amos I. Amos I, who was uh, made pharaoh in 1550 BC. And at that time, whenever he rose to power, Egypt was not one great big nation. It was lots of little states that all would have reported back to the main pharaoh um, in the southern part of the country. But in the northern part of the country, there was a group of people called the Hikos. You've probably never heard of them unless you watch weird documentaries on the History Channel at 2 a.m. And the Hikos, we know very little about the Hikos, but we know where the Hikos came from. The Hikos came from Cana and from Syria, same place Israelites came from. And we reckon that several hundred years before King Amos or Pharaoh Amos came to power, they moved into the northern part of Egypt, into the Nile Delta, the green bit of, of Egypt. And they lived and ruled there. And historians have come to believe that whenever Joseph came into Egypt, he was the second most powerful person in all of Egypt because he would have been influential amongst this people called the Hikos, who would have reported to Pharaoh, but ultimately almost functioned as a vassal state in the northern part of the country for hundreds of years. They were incredibly fruitful. They introduced just horses and chariots and all sorts of technology to the Egyptians to help them grow their empire. And as, a, as an empire, they were growing and doing well until a new king arose over Egypt who had no memory of Joseph, who did not know of what was going on up in the north. All he knew is that there were foreigners up in the north that he didn't like and he wanted rid of them. And Pharaoh Amos invaded the north of Egypt, driving these people from Cana and Syria all the way back across the peninsula and up into modern-day Palestine. 
And as he was chasing and driving after them, he needed manpower to fuel his advancing armies. And therefore, the Israelites, this people who are caught up in this whirling of civil events that are taking place, suddenly they are put to work building huge cities, these store cities of Pi-Ramesses and Pithom. And these cities would have fueled the advancing armies going into modern day Palestine and Israel as the Egyptian empire expands. Amos would become one of the most influential pharaohs in all of Egyptian history. And actually his reign starts a new period that historians call the new great kingdom of Egypt because he expands it so quickly and so mercilessly across the world. But there's a problem. Because whenever he's doing that, he realizes here he has this people group, the Israelites, who are in his country, who have come from the same land that he's now waging war against. And then they pose a very useful tool in labor, but also an awful threat to the internal security of his kingdom. And so they are enslaved and put to this brutal work. You can almost read how the author of Exodus is trying to get us to understand just how painful the work was. In verse, verse 13, they were ruthlessly made to work as slaves. In 14, their lives were made bitter with hard service. And then again at the end of the verse, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This would have been a miserable existence for these people miserable existence, as second-class citizens. And as they are being forced to work to build a, 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 a cities to the glory of the Egyptian pharaoh, bound into that work is the subtle idea that they are having to serve the pharaoh of Egypt because they are inferior to the Egyptians. It's almost as if they are subhumans. And then we get to the real awful thing that the pharaoh decides to do down in verse 15, whenever the genocide begins, whenever he tells the midwives, these two who were probably the two leading midwives amongst the Hebrew nation at the time, to kill every newborn son. Now, what's interesting is that if he had wanted to wipe out the Israelites, often ancient rulers would have said that you kill all the, all the girls whenever they're born. But the fact that he's wanting to kill the men shows that He's wanting to still have a workforce, still have people who he can put into to slave labor. But he's also, though, wanting to strip them of anybody who might take up arms against them. It's really a brutal and horrible way in which they have been put to slavery. And this was the life that so many Israelites would have known. Their entire life would have been working under this horrible, punishing regime never knowing freedom from it, never knowing escape from it, it absorbing every single aspect of their lives. In a very short space of time in our Bibles on the pages, the people of God have traveled a huge distance from the height of society all the way down to the very rungs. They are enslaved and cannot escape. And that primes us. As I said, Exodus is priming us for the New Testament. That primes us for the New Testament. Because where there is a slavery that starts off with the people of God in the Old Testament, there is a slavery 
that is alluded to time and time again in the New Testament, not to chain and sword or to foreign power, but to our own flesh, the world and the devil. That we are enslaved, not maybe by a, a foreign ruler, but we're enslaved to our own selves, to our own passions and desires and to the sin that fills the world around us. All you need to do is look at the world around you to see this at work. So many of us live lives filled of conflicting desires and passions, don't we? How many of us, whenever we've read Romans chapter 7, whenever Paul says, I do all the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do, how many of us go, oh, that's, that's how I feel? How many of us feel that we are trapped in some way, constantly falling back into the old same habits? And all in the while, we live in a world that's trying to hold out freedom and offering us slavery. We're in the same market aisle that tells you, you know, in five easy steps, you can have six pack abs, sells you a magazine right beside it that tells you how to make a delicious chocolate cake. Or how many of us ever find ourselves looking and searching all the more for some deeper meaning in our jobs or career, thinking the next time that we get a promotion, then we'll be happy and satisfied. And then we left wanting a bit more or a bit more. How many of us think if our kids just get into the school we want them to, then we'll be happy? And then the new problem comes up and there's another issue begins in the family. How many of us jump from thing to thing thinking that we will find ultimately be fully satisfied, fully uh, made whole by this thing that we're longing for, be it a job, be it a promotion, be it a, the result we want to hear from the doctor, and it always leaves us wanting, and we are enslaved to it, are we not? That always wanting to have a little bit more and think that then we'll be satisfied. We are enslaved to our own passions and desires and want of more. There's a writer, John Mark Homer, who said this. He said, you know, free people self-edit this mix of inner desires. The wise recognize that pleasure is not the same as happiness. Pleasure is about dopamine. Happiness is about serotonin. Pleasure is about the next hit of feel good in the moment. Happiness is about contentment over the long haul. A sense that life is rich and satisfying as it is. Pleasure is about want. Happiness is about freedom from want. And so I ask you this morning, are you happy? Are you satisfied? Or are you enslaved to the endless cry of want? So many of us, I'm sure, are in these, these shoes. But the book of Exodus doesn't end there. Because we see a savior is coming. A saviour is coming. A saviour who, as we read the, the wonderful words that are worlds, words that end uh, chapter two, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And he sends them a saviour. A saviour born out of extraordinary circumstances. He'll be born amidst a genocide of his people. He will be forced to flee in the early years of his life for his own safety. Who will declare a new law of God 
from a mountain or a mount who will show the people of God how they may enter into the promised kingdom of their God, Yahweh. Do you see how we are being primed for a taste of Jesus by the life of Moses? How Moses comes delivering a bit of of the, the law of God and of the hope of salvation that will come through the covenant God, Yahweh, pointing forward to the greater Moses, Jesus, who will fulfill it in greater and stronger terms, who will not just give them a law that addresses exterior behavior, but a sermon on the mount that will address the heart, who doesn't just allow people a series of sacrifices that allow them to have their sins forgiven, but a savior who will come, who will be the sacrifice that will allow the forgiveness of all sins. A savior, Moses, who will come, giving them relief from temporary stresses and burdens and slavery, pointing forward to a Jesus who will come and offer us total and complete freedom from sin, death, and the devil. If we would but take and be satisfied in him. For where the people of God start out this story in slavery, this story will ultimately end with a savior who will promise that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. If we would but come and serve him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that you tell us through your book, Exodus. Lord, would we grasp there's a wonderful promise here. Lord, would we take hold of it and look forward to our wonderful Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.